Before we open our time together uh, as the people of the Lord, uh, let's, let's pray. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that as we open your word today, that you, Holy Spirit, would speak to us and that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, as Jen said earlier, today is Christ the King Sunday. Christ the King Sunday is a church holiday that is the last Sunday, I didn't need that anyway, of the church calendar. So what that means is that we've got, you know, a year of church holidays that starts in Advent, goes all the way through the year, and stops today. So Happy New Year's Eve. We don't have, we don't have a ball to drop, but we will be decorating later, so please stick around for that. But it is also, this, this, this Sunday, this Christ the King Sunday, is a holiday set aside for us as the church to reflect on what it means that Christ is King over everything, over our lives, over our church, over the world. And I'm really glad, actually, that the Acts series wrapped up last week and that we were able to fit this celebration of Christ the King into the sermon schedule, not just because Mike is a big fan of it, but also because today's passages and themes fit really well with both the overarching themes of Acts and themes of our Advent series, which we will be starting next week. So let's open the word together then. We're going to be looking today at Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. If you're using the Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 988, or you can look it up on your phones. That's fine too. So let's set the stage for this passage a little bit. Within the context of Matthew's gospel, this passage comes at the end of Jesus' last block of teaching, just before the Last Supper, his arrest, and his crucifixion. Timeline-wise, this passage is on the Tuesday of Holy Week. Jesus has been teaching his disciples all about what it is that's going to happen to him and what is going to happen when he returns at the end of time to judge the living and the dead. He's been telling parables about people not being properly prepared for the return of their master and what it means to faithfully expect the return of Christ as king over the new creation. So let's read then, starting at verse 31. Jesus told his disciples, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. 
Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of one of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Could I be turned down just like five decibels in the house? I'm running really hot here. So when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that is amazing, thank you so much, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him he will have gathered all the nations, and he will separate the people one from another, just as a shepherd might separate sheep from goats. Now the imagery here that Jesus is evoking in this teaching, and then that also Matthew is picking up on as he's recording this, is one that calls back to the Old Testament prophets and apocalyptic visions that the prophet Daniel had. Specifically, um, I'm thinking this week of a passage from Ezekiel, chapter 34. And in this chapter, God says to Ezekiel, thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from all the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. I will feed them with good pasture on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy and I will feed them in justice. But as for you, my flock, Thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. So Jesus is clearly picking up on some of that imagery, even though Ezekiel's more specifically prophesying about the 12 tribes of Israel being returned from their exile. But you can hear in that passage some of the ways in which Jesus acted and taught during his earthly ministry. The part that to really hear in that passage is that God will judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. This idea of Matthew calling Jesus and Jesus calling himself the Son of Man also comes from some Old Testament prophecies that have to deal with judgment and the end times. So, the Son of Man, Christ, the King, he has been enthroned. He is ready to judge all the nations, separating them on his right and on his left. He blesses those on his right, congratulating them for works well done. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me food. Thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then he curses the people on his left for neglecting to do everything that the people on his right had just done. And he casts those on his left out into eternal fire. Interestingly, not prepared just for them, but for the devil and his angels. I think this passage can be a bit difficult to figure out, a little bit difficult to parse the meaning of, especially for those of us of the Reformed persuasion of Christianity who are all about being saved by grace through faith. Because at first glance, this passage kind of reads like Jesus will either allow us into heaven or kick us out based on the works that we have done through our lives. Everyone seems to be getting judged by what they did or did not do. 
But I don't think that's the point of this passage, and I also don't think that that's actually what's being portrayed here in Jesus' words. And here's why. Both the people on the king's right and the people on his left are surprised at what the king says to them. Those sheep, those on his right say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? They have no idea what he's talking about. They can't remember when they interacted with him and helped him. And the same for those on the left. They can't remember when they didn't help Jesus. Because, of course, if you saw Jesus standing on the side of the road, you'd be like, hi, how are you? So what's going on then? Why is it that these people don't know the good works that they've done throughout their lives? Well, I think part of it is what Jesus points out. He says, whatever you have done unto the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you have done unto me. Jesus isn't congratulating or condemning anyone because of what they have done to him, Jesus specifically, and personally, but rather because of what they have done or have not done to the least of these. The downtrodden, the sick, the undernourished, the outcasts, the prisoners, those who have been rejected by society and are oppressed. Their deeds or lack thereof to these people is what is being judged. But there's still more to it than just the fact that Jesus himself isn't literally the sick, hungry, thirsty, naked, imprisoned, or strange person. Do you remember the last good deed that you did? Or rather, if you think of yourself doing a good deed, what pops into your mind? Maybe it was the last time you gave some cash to the homeless person panhandling at the intersection you drive through every day. Maybe you, you were intentionally kind to a cashier or a server. Or maybe you volunteered your time to and resources for a ministry of our church or some other ministry. But what about the things that we can't remember? If I were to just take a quick poll of everybody's significant others, our spouses, our friends, our family, if we just asked everybody else about the good things that we do, how many things do you think they would be able to list that you and I just forgot that we did? What I'm getting at here is that these people, these sheep, they were surprised at the words of the king not because they forgot, but because of how they lived their lives, how they were posturing themselves as God's people. I don't think that the sheep are merely forgetful or have some dramatic soap opera level of amnesia, but rather they lived their lives on earth in a manner and in a posture that was so aligned with the work that they were called to do as servants of God's kingdom, that they just did good works without really even thinking of them as such. Not to say that they didn't do it intentionally, because we have to do things intentionally, because that's how our brains work, but it became so much a part of their lives that they didn't really think about it. It became as natural to them as breathing or their hearts beating or blinking. And this is where we get our first fun and providential connection to our past and future sermon series. 
I did not choose this passage to preach. Mike did not tell me you have to preach on this passage because it'll have some fun connections. No, this was just the gospel passage assigned for this Sunday by the Revised Common Lectionary. So 31 years ago, God put it in some people's heads to have year A, Christ the King Sunday, be from Matthew 25. And that's great because this passage picks up on so much of what we just got done talking about over the past year or so in our Acts series. Because in that series, we looked at many examples of how the people of God lived out a posture of compassion and faithfulness as they sought to follow Jesus' teaching and call on their lives. The tagline was, living out firm foundation as God's church. Main point, being bold and courageous witnesses without hindrance. Everything that we've gone over in the book of Acts shows us how to live out this compassionate and faithful posture, or in some notable examples, how not to do that. Think of Peter preaching before the crowds gathered on Pentecost, going into the home of Cornelius the Roman centurion, baptizing him and his family because he could sense God's presence with them. Think of Paul, once he had converted from being dramatically and a thousand percent against Christianity to becoming its most stalwart defender and evangelist, making the case for the gospel before Jewish and Roman religious and secular officials, even to the point where he got killed because of it. The book of Acts is chock full of examples of the followers of Christ for whom living out and sharing the gospel was a matter of fact. Their posture was one of compassion and faithfulness to Christ, that everything they did was for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the kingdom as natural as breathing. And again, as has been discussed multiple times throughout the book of Acts, these people were just normal people. There's nothing special about what the apostles and disciples were doing that is somehow mystically out of our grasp. They were not especially empowered by the Holy Spirit in a way that we cannot be. They were normal people who had been called to a life of serving Christ, just as we who believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior are. And as normal people, they messed up. They made mistakes. Not everything was easy for them. Peter, the first champion of bringing the Gentiles into the fold of God's kingdom, screwed that up and lost his courage about letting them in just as they were. Paul, we know, not only obviously persecuted the church before coming to Christ, but struggled in his life with opposition and with torture and even within his own spirit. Likewise, I'm sure that these metaphorical sheep, these people on the right hand of the king that we read about in Matthew, were not perfect and were not especially empowered by the Spirit in ways that we can't attain. It's safe to assume that they're just normal people like you and I. Something else that's been going through my mind as I've been working on this is how our discovery classes and our process for becoming a covenant partner here at Bethel functions. Everyone who wishes to become a covenant partner of this congregation is asked the same question. When did Jesus become more than a name for you? Or what does it mean for Jesus to actually mean something to you outside of just a generic 
faith or belief? What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord of your life? What this is meant to get at for us is for us to really examine ourselves and what it means for us to be faithful disciples of Christ, to be able to share our testimonies of when Jesus has become very real to us, that we can both encourage and build up the body of Christ and share the gospel with others. So for our sheep in our passage today, Jesus becoming more than a name to them meant that they adopted this posture of compassion and faithful living to follow after their Lord and Savior. So what does that mean for us here today? Is this just a practical challenge for us to do more good works? Is this like my neglected Goodreads challenge list of how many books I should be reading this year? Are we to do more good works so that we can keep ourselves out of hell or tip some divine scales of justice in our favor? No, not at all. That's not the point that Jesus is making to his disciples, and therefore it is certainly not the point that is being made to us today. But this is indeed a call to action. A lot of times we can become a bit lazy in our living out our Christian lives. You know, the longer one is a Christian, the easier it is to lose some enthusiasm that we once had or fall into a bit of a lazy routine or even a rut, especially us frozen, chosen Presbyterians. It becomes easy for us to rest on our laurels of theology of salvation that often downplay the importance of the practical and day-to-day things that we are called to do as followers of Christ. And that, my friends, is why we need to be reminded again and again and again and again what it is we have been called to do. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Ephesus, articulates his hope for them, which I think is also God's hope for us. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says this to the church, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and, every, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Every single week, at least in the traditional service, we profess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. And you've said that too if you've come to our one worship service. And one of the key phrases in there, this founding document, this founding creed of what it means to be a Christian, is that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father from where He will come to judge the living and the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. That means that Christ isn't just this king to be eventually, who will take his throne at the end of time, but that he is already exalted to his kingship over all creation. 
This means that as followers of Christ, we are actively being called to follow Christ's teachings and to live out the lives that we have been called to. Because Christ is ruler over all creation right now. Not just in some vague future that we'll get to eventually, but right now, God is ushering in his kingdom over this creation as we speak that Jesus began to do when he rose from the dead and we are called and invited to partner with God in this. This is why, going back to the text in Matthew, the king tells his followers that they are not just subjects of him, but rather they are co-inheritors of the kingdom. The king says, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The kingdom work of God that we as believers are called to undertake isn't just for the sake of following our Lord and Savior. It definitely is, but there's more to it. It is the work of the kingdom that we ourselves will share in. We've got buy-in, as it were. As Paul says to his letter to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. As disciples of Christ, as co-heirs of this kingdom, we are called to follow the example of our king and not just let him go off and do all of the work himself, even though he definitely could. Again, leaning on the apostle Paul, in the letter to the church in Philippi, he says this about Christ. We need to follow Christ's example who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But therefore, God has, has, not will, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And this is where we get our tie-in to our upcoming Advent series. This, always wor- this works generically with the Advent season because during Advent, we are looking forward to the coming of Christ to be incarnate as this tiny, helpless human baby, looking forward to celebrating His making Himself nothing, His taking on the form of a servant, His being born as a man, Emmanuel, God with us. But we are also, every year during the Advent season, looking forward to Christ's second coming, when the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will be with the Lord forever. So every year during Advent, that's what we're looking forward to, both celebrating the incarnation and the return of Christ as the king over the new creation, where we will be with him forever as co-heirs of that kingdom. And this year, specifically, we are looking at what it means to rest as we wait for those things. 
part of the very nature of God that we can see throughout Scripture from creation to the Ten Commandments and the prophets and the life of Jesus and beyond is Sabbath rest, intentional resting in God. And as faithful and compassionate disciples of Jesus, we are called both to take refuge and rest in God, but then to invite others into that rest, into that eternal rest in salvation in Christ and inheritance of the kingdom. We are not just shown examples of feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, caring for the sick and in prison, but God also calls us to rest in Him as part of our lives as His people. And the example laid out for us in our main passage today is one of complete and utter submission to the call of God for His people so that His disciples emulate Him so much that acting out God's teachings and will for our lives and for the world is so natural that in Him we just, we live and move and have our very being. We have jumped around to several different epistles uh, this morning, but I want us to end our time together today thinking about more of the nitty gritty, everyday practicality of the implications of this passage and call in our lives that we have as followers of Christ. It is obviously the holiday season. Hopefully everybody had some good food this past weekend. It is a time of year when we collectively think about giving. Wrapping up our stewardship campaign, we're looking forward to next year and what God has in store for our ministries here. We are wrapping up our yearly thank offering we were at my parents' church on Thursday. They always have like a bigger giving envelope for Thanksgiving so you can more specially designate extra monies to go towards ministries. Tuesday is hashtag Giving Tuesday, which I'm sure you are well aware of if you are on any nonprofit's mailing list. And we have people from our church ringing bells at Kroger for the Salvation Army. We're buying gifts for families at the schools we support that don't have financial stability etc., etc., etc. It is incredibly easy for us to participate in these activities and ministries around this time of the year because that's just what everyone does. Even outside of the church, the holiday season is a time of giving. But participating in holiday activities and events isn't necessarily what we're being challenged to do here today. Yes, we should still participate in all of these wonderful things as the Holy Spirit calls and leads us to do because they are great and it is a wonderful opportunity to share the gospel with others. But that's not our challenge. Our challenge for us is to remember that the families whose gifts we can put under that tree, the gift cards that we're getting from them, these families at these schools that we support are still financially unstable after Christmas. The homeless shelters and food pantries of the world still need to be stocked and run and supported around the year. Inequality and oppression of all kinds still exist January through mid-November. The call for us to follow the example of Christ our King is one of constancy, of compassion all the time, faithfulness all the time. Christ, our King, who didn't just hang out and eat with sinners and tax collectors on holidays, 
but who did it all the time. Our king, who did not just heal and forgive and care for people when it was convenient for him, but who actively inconvenienced himself to be able to do that because that is the kingdom work that he was called to, and that is the kingdom work that we are also called to. In the Gospel of Luke, this is the last time I'm going to jump around, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, Jesus lays out at the beginning of his earthly ministry what exactly this kingdom work of God is that he himself has come, had come to do and that we are to follow in his footsteps in doing. Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. A scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. God says to the prophet Ezekiel, I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. The king says to those on his right, I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me, and I was in prison, and you came to me. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you have done it unto me. My friends, follow the example of Christ, our King. Follow the example of the believers that we studied in Acts. In the coming weeks, as we look forward towards Christmas, we're going to be looking at following the example of Jesus and the people who followed his example and call to rest in the midst of the chaos of their lives. May we do this not just during the holidays when it's easy and expected, but may we do this every day. May we not do this because we think that we have to tip some divine scales in our favor, but because we are willingly and enthusiastically living out our calling from our King to live for God every single day. May we do so so that at the end of time, when we stand before God's throne, that we are surprised at the things that are brought up that we did in service to God's kingdom. That we may be in a posture of compassion for the least of these that God places in our lives. That we may be bold and courageous witnesses to the gospel without hindrance to the glory of God alone. May we follow after our King and seek to live our lives for Him today and every day. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, You have called us to a life of service in Your name. You have called us to follow after You and to become more and more like You, ushering in Your kingdom here and now in every aspect of our lives, to bring all of creation closer to You. Oh, Holy Spirit, may you empower us anew today 
to be able to seek out your will, to listen to where you are calling us to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to embrace the stranger, to care for the sick, to visit and advocate for the prisoner. More than that, O Lord, may you continually remind us to live every single day for you so that our postures and attitudes of good deeds and generous living that we have around this holiday season may persist throughout the year so that when people look at us, they would not see us and our individual good deeds, nor that they would even see our church, but that they would see you, Christ, through us. Grant us your compassion. May we be faithful to follow you in everything we do. We pray this in the powerful name of Christ, our King, King over all creation, King who stepped down and became incarnate as one of us. Amen. Friends, as we go out from this place into the world, may we live our lives following the example of our King, who has called us to a life of compassion and faithfulness to Him, that we can share the gospel and being bold and courageous without hindrance, so that people may not see us, but may see our God, who we follow, that we may be His hands and feet to do His kingdom work that we are co-inheritors of for the least of these that have been placed into our lives, both now and every single day throughout the rest of our lives. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all God's people said, amen. Go in peace.